Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer. I'm Head of Events Content here at Sports Pro. And as always, I'm your host for today's show. Once again, joined by my hosting partner in crime, Tom Bassam, Sports Pro's off-platform editor. I say once again, Tom, but it's actually been a few weeks since we've, uh, we've been in the mic hot seat together. What's happened? Have I been relegated? You've been the off-podcast editor, mate. You've been absent without leave, as far as I'm concerned. Some of us had to hold, <laughs> hold this ship down. And yeah, you fancy Dan's been flying around, you know, having meetings and doing calls and all that boring stuff that goes into people's calendars. But um, yeah, some of us have been grinding away. It's been my podcast quarter-life crisis. Run off without saying a word to anyone. Now, this week, I'm glad to say that we have a rose that sits between two thorns, and I would like to welcome Kian Brittle, the motorsport writer at Blackbird Motorsport, a sports pro sister company, to the podcast. Kian, it's good to see you, and good to see you alive and kicking. Yeah, just about, George. Uh, good to be back. Um, had a, a little operation three weeks ago, which I am slowly recovering from, so I'm starting to feel a little bit more human now. How is the shoulder, and how's the process of recovery been? Is it lots of TV shows, lots of movies on the sofa? You'd hope so. A lot of sitting on the sofa, actually. I've gained three metal bolts in my shoulder, so hoping that from now on it's uh, no dislocations anymore. So next time I'll, you come on the pod, you'll be motorsport writer and sports pro Ironman, Kian Brittle. Exactly. The, uh, the bionic arm will really help with my news output as well. Now, it's probably quite handy that you decided to have the operation in late February, because that means that you can probably say it was a work decision and it gives you the opportunity to watch all the new episodes of Drive to Survive as part of your role. Have you been tucking in? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I've watched the first, I think, six or seven episodes. Didn't quite finish it, although I am channeling my my best Lance Stroll impression, who began last season with multiple metal bolts in his wrist after an injury. Love it. And what's the verdict so far? It's more of the same. It's a good show for people who don't know a lot about F1, and it's a good way to encourage more people to watch the sport. Love it. Well, obviously, the, the release of Drive to Survive means that only one thing, that the dawn of the new F1 season is upon us. Kian, I know you'll be excited. Tom, are your engines started? Are you revved up for the new Formula One season? Always, George, always. You know me, I love cars going around in circles. No, um, yeah, no, it should be good. The start of the season for me is usually the most exciting bit because it's the bit before you find out whether or not they're like one team is just going to dominate the whole year. So uh, it's all a mystery still, and that's the fun bit, right? Kian, are you in agreement there? Do you think it's a mystery of what's going to happen this year? I think the longer we pretend it's a mystery, the better it is. You can't really take anything from testing, but it does seem like maybe Red Bull may have an even quicker car once more. Well, that's something for everyone listening to look forward to. I want to start actually by looking ahead to this new season by actually looking at who won't be joining Formula One from 2025, for sure, potentially by 2028, and that's Andretti Motorsport. So, Kin, for those that don't know, run me through where we've got to now, why it's a particularly important juncture and how we've got there. Yeah, so Andretti are obviously a massive name in motorsport, a massive American name, which I guess in the current climate of F1 is quite a peg to hang your coat on really because there's such a big drive in the US market that you'd think that this is an open goal for them to get this sort of big American name onto a global stage like F1. But throughout the process and throughout all of the communications from F1, They've always seemed to be anti this, and so it came as no surprise when it was officially announced that the Andretti bit was being rejected. It was sort of initially set up with the FIA, the governing body of F1, not opening the door and saying that Andretti should be joining the sport, but F1, who control the commercial rights and F1 management, decided that 
commercially, it made no sense for Andretti to be joining F1 at this time. Obviously, you've mentioned that the door is open in 2028. Whether or not that comes around remains to be seen, but this initial bid has been cut off and has been rejected. Tom, it's quite interesting to look at the reasons behind the rejection. And it's also probably quite rare for a rights holder to be quite so open as to why the bid was rejected. Formula One being quite clear that they felt that the addition of the 11th team wouldn't provide any value to the property itself, but would provide much more value to Andretti as a brand. Do you think that's fair? And what do you think the consequences are in terms of Andretti's response, looking ahead to potentially 2028 and then other brands are looking to get into to Formula One that haven't quite made it this far? I think it's probably a fair assessment that Andretti would benefit more from joining F1 as a, as a brand than F1 would benefit from Andretti joining as a brand. I certainly feel like the series, maybe that's a different question. Like the idea of bringing in General Motors into the fold of F1, like I, think that's, I think that is a really big opportunity for the series and I think that's probably something that means it could well happen in the future. I guess the thing here is that like you're asking the turkeys to vote for Christmas a little bit on this one. You've got 10 well-established teams, some of whom are already struggling, one of whom is already American, asking to bring in a bigger American brand, which may potentially have greater backing or might be more competitive. I think that the commercial business here reacted in the way that it did because of pressures from coming internally. That's the, the sort of my answer on the first bit of the question. I guess in terms of like the reaction from Andretti, like with the door still being open in 2028, there's probably your answer, but it does seem like quite a long road to that change happening. And you'd feel like maybe one team would have to go or there'd have to be a change in the way that the kind of the system worked, which I don't see happening. But also, I guess the sort of other thing here is that what's interesting is that it's kind of pit Formula One, the Liberty-owned business up against the FIA, the regulator of motorsport. Like the FIA, clearly pretty happy about this. They ran the process almost seemingly independent of Formula One to get a new team in, waiting through, and then the rejection came. And it was not really a surprise to anyone, I think, that was following the F1 side of this very closely. But maybe if you'd been looking at the whole thing and being like, well, I guess the sort of the football equivalent would be FIFA approving a new tournament and then none of the teams deciding to show up or something along those lines. Keen, I'm keen to delve into that dynamic in a little bit more detail because a lot of the rulings, reasonings centred around the need for a, a heritage OEM or an original equipment manufacturer. So the need for Cadillac or General Motors to be more central to the bid or the need to bring in a heritage motorsport business, essentially, a manufacturer. Yet, that would be more in line with an FIA-type reasoning. Would that be fair to say, rather than the commercial arm of Formula One, yet it's more of a technical issue that seems to be the core of the, the rejection? As Tom mentioned, the whole Andretti as a brand benefiting F1, I think F1 sees it much more as General Motors needing to be attached to this bid in order for it to hold commercial value. Obviously, General Motors is a, a massive automotive manufacturer and having that in F1 could only be a good thing. But they currently don't have the capacity to build an engine until 2028. So from F1 side, they see this as accepting Andretti on a promise that General Motors may eventually have an engine by 2028, but it's not guaranteed. So their reasoning was basically until that time when General Motors is ready, 
Andretti would have to do separate deals with other engine manufacturers already in F1 to get them up until the point where General Motors is ready to enter the sport. So commercially, I think F1 saw that just as not the right fit at not the right time. There's also a big uh, regulation overhaul in 2026, which I think Andretti were planning to build a car for 2025 and then build a completely different car to different regulations for 2026 which again was another thing that F1 picked out in their quite lengthy appraisal of Andretti's bid and said, that's just not realistic. So I think from a commercial standpoint, it definitely makes sense where F1 is coming from, but it does feel quite short-sighted. So General Motors was attached to this bid, but as what, a kind of like sponsor partner as opposed to a a supply deal? Well, yeah, so a a technical partnership um, in essence, sort of probably a little bit more involved than what you'd probably see with Ford supporting Red Bull's engine division when Ford come on board. This was more General Motors would be producing the engine themselves, which F1 picked out in their response saying maybe General Motors hasn't fully grasped the scale of that process in producing an engine by themselves. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's just uh, my limited understanding of the situation, but yeah, good to get it clarified. Now, Ken, a lot of the commentary, including by Black Book ourselves have mentioned the importance of the 2026 Concord Agreement as being an important milestone in the next step for this bid. Can you explain to me what the Concord Agreement is and why that's going to have an impact? So basically, I think in layman's terms, it's the agreement by which all teams sign up to race in F1 and how they basically get prize money distributed. It's the main source of all revenue for the teams. At the moment, under the current agreement, say Andretti were to join they would only need to pay $200 million as an anti-dilution fee, as it's called, in order to join the sport to offset basically what them joining the sport would take away from all the other teams in terms of revenues being split between 11 teams instead of 10. Most teams picked up on this quite early and realised that maybe $200 million was quite a low price to enter Formula 1. So all the talk leading up to this has been, well, we quite clearly need to increase this I think part of the reasoning behind F1 rebuffing Andretti's bid is because the Concord Agreement hasn't been renewed for 2026 yet. And once that new price is set in stone, I think they'll be much more open to discussing this with Andretti because if you're looking at a $600, $800 million entry fee, then suddenly it becomes a bit more of a commercial conversation than Andretti getting a cut price deal based on economics from before Formula One's boom in popularity. From what you've mentioned, it seems as if this bid was always a bit of a Hail Mary, looking at what's been quite obvious opposition externally, certainly from Formula One side, and the technical challenges that you mentioned, the unrealistic expectations in terms of building two new cars, two different sets of regulations. 2028 seems a much more achievable target. Do you think there's a sense that the relevant parties knew that this submission was always up against it and that actually it's priming the waters and it's testing negotiation tactics, testing where people stand on certain issues in order to prime a much more realistic bid down the line. Or am I being too cynical? Maybe a bit too cynical. I don't know if they'd have bid if they didn't think they'd have a chance of being accepted because there's obviously reputation attached to this. I think Andretti would have genuinely believed with General Motors with them that they had every chance of joining the grid. It was quite interesting to see in F1's response that they said that basically if Andretti joined the grid and couldn't compete for wins and podiums, then that would damage the reputation of F1. 
And yet, before the start of this season, we've had Haas already come out and say that they're going to be racing at the back of the grid, guaranteed, from the start of this season. So it does feel quite a bit like a closed shop at the moment, but I'm also not surprised that F1 are taking this approach, especially with the financial difficulties that teams have gone through in recent years. I mean, Force India only went under in 2018. MANA went under in 2016. So these are very recent sort of administration problems in the sport. So there's still that sort of feeling in the back of the paddock's mind when it comes to new teams joining the grid. So I think it will take some time for it to for it to change. It'll be interesting to see how things develop and certainly I'm sure it'll be a talking point that continues. Let's focus a little bit more now on the present and looking ahead to the new season. And it certainly seems as if there's a few challenges that F1 is facing as a property for 2024 and in particular competition and driving interest, driving engagement after what was quite a a difficult 2023 from a, a TV ratings point of view. Can you talk me through that? Obviously, we all saw Red Bull run away with it last season. And from a competitive standpoint, obviously, I mean, we won't see many seasons as dominant as that from Red Bull in terms of how impressive they were and how impressive Max Verstappen was. But then, as you mentioned, viewership is going to struggle in times like this where there's little to no chance of someone challenging Max for a race win. And I think, obviously, F1's always experienced these waves of dominance, you know, Lewis Hamilton, Vettel, Schumacher. We've always gone through these sort of periods of one driver really running away with it all. I think where this is different is we entered this budget cap era with this promise of a more level playing field. And then Red Bull completely smashed the new regulations, turned up with a car that was far better than everyone else's, and we've been left with yet another period of dominance. I feel like if we look at, say, the US, because quite a lot of markets are now not really being that open with their viewership figures, but the US posted figures last season of 1.1 million average viewers per race, which is not that great for the US, especially considering it's a reduction on 2022. If you compare that to something like NASCAR, which got 2.8 million average viewers last season, even IndyCar managed 1.3 million average viewers last season. So F1 is obviously trailing these two other major motorsport series in the US. So there's still a lot more for it to do, I think, in terms of you know addressing that competitive balance. But it's like, how do you actually approach that and also tackle that that viewership issue. Yeah, it's always a tricky balance between you know, respecting fair competition and the engagement, I guess, demands that sport can bring. A lot of the conversation around Formula One has dominated around, you know, a hugely growing US market, typically attributed to the success of Drive to Survive and what was really a one-off exciting championship in the race between Verstappen and Hamilton for the world title and the incredible climax that that season had. Do you think that as time goes by, that will be looked upon as a bit of a golden one-off period, a bit of an anomaly when it comes to viewership within Formula One, the sort of the peak of a reality TV series that come and go and the peak of an incredible sporting rivalry that, again, come and go? Or do you think that actually this is something that's been failed to be built on? I think it's a mix of both. I think you're going to struggle to to go into a, a final race of the season with both drivers on exactly the same points, even if 
the cars were more equally balanced. I think that finale was just in its own way was one of its kind will be struggled to be replicated again. But yeah, there's definitely more that can be done and more that can be built on in terms of at least creating the environment for that to be more possible. Red Bull, obviously, they understood the regulations better than everyone else. They've got the, probably the greatest aerodynamicist in F1 history and Adrian Newey, who understood these regulations and Red Bull were now reaping the rewards from that. I think we obviously get another reset in 2026 with a new set of regulations. Could that bring the field closer together again? I mean, we're just guessing as to whether that will have the desired effect on bringing the field closer together again. But we did see towards the end of last season that cars could get up and get closer to Red Bull, whether that was McLaren, who came with a massive update at Silverstone and were at least challenging Red Bull for pole positions rather than race wins. So there's definitely progress that can be made, but it very much depends on, I guess, where Red Bull are and where Max Verstappen is this season. The viewership figures that you mentioned, Tom, I'm keen to throw this to you. Stagnant numbers maybe in the US and those that lag behind other properties there. That was always seen as a growth market for the US, but actually it's European home markets have seen a bit of a downturn as well in 2023. I mean, reports do vary, but it's you know, roughly estimated between 20 to 30% in some key markets. Tom, is that, in your mind, a temporary competition-linked area, or have we seen that golden age being gone? I mean, I think it's always linked to competition. I think they're sort of intrinsically linked. That's the, the kind of ebbs and flows that you've got to put up with. I guess for Formula One, it's about minimising the impact of the drag that lack of competition can have. We're seeing that at the moment, the narrative around the Champions League. People tune out when the games aren't as interesting. People will tune out when like the, the racing isn't close. Like if you think that you already know the result of something, then it's very hard to convince more people to watch that regardless. I guess for F one the challenge will be to try and minimise that and make sure that everything else around it is operating at a decent level. It is an ebb and flow. Like you can't predict, I don't think, like in two to three years' time, who's to say that a Lewis Hamilton-led Ferrari car isn't going to be absolutely smashing Red Bull, but you don't you don't know that. I guess what Red, uh, I guess what F1 will be saying is that like, let's try and make sure that when, if and when that does happen, that we can still keep our viewers on a relatively even keel and make sure the other parts of the business are propping up that TV area because, but it does have an impact. It will have an impact on how much broadcasters are willing to pay the next time the right cycle comes around. I feel like F1 got reasonably lucky with that in the US when they were coming off a huge season. ESPN renewed at a much higher price and had we got the season that we had last season, the season when ESPN were renewing, then you might not have seen that same result. So it will ebb and flow. I think when it comes to the US, that's clearly where they're targeting a lot of that marketing effort You've got the extra races there now, and I think that's probably where they're going to try and solidify. I don't think everyone would say this out loud, but I do think that their priority has shifted away from maybe some of the core markets where they saw a larger viewership collapse towards bolstering the, that US offering. I mean, if you've got that many North American races in that time zone, you're sort of giving more people a reason to watch in that market, which to me seems like a reasonably sensible strategy in terms of how you're positioning F1 as a property. As Kian said, it didn't quite work last year. Like they were still behind the two leading motorsport properties in the US in IndyCar and NASCAR. But I mean, you only have to look at NASCAR for like how the kind of 
not in the ebbs, ebbs and flows of competition, but just the ebbs and flows of like sport can impact their rating. It's like the most recent Daytona 500 was the second least watched of all time. Last Sunday we saw an Ascar race which finished like I think I think it was a, like a photo finish with a 0.01% time difference. So you can be impacted by things outside of competition. I guess it's just making sure you minimize your risk on that. And long-term TV deals, prioritizing like big audience markets. These are the things that F1's been doing the last few years to try and make sure it keeps its head above water when perhaps the racing isn't the most interesting. Kian, I, I wanted to take that a step further. I mean, w- what should and can Formula One be focusing on that is within their control outside of the sort of the vagaries of competitive racing? You know, what are going to be some of the key targets that they're going to be looking at for this year that would constitute success just outside of the, the TV ratings? Without stating the obvious, We've talked about competitive balance a lot here, but a competitive season, that'd be the main thing for this season. If someone can challenge Max for the title this year, then that's only a bonus. But then outside of that sort of continued, I guess, commercial growth of the sport, we've seen a big boom over the last few years, especially, I mean, I don't know how long we can talk about the drive to survive effect, but as a result of drive to survive, we saw a massive influx of brands, And I think we're seeing a consolidation of that at the moment with a lot of contract renewals, inventory perhaps, you know, being taken up by that initial influx of brands, but they're staying and they're sticking around and they're renewing those contracts. So there's clearly, you know, that desire to still be attached to F1, despite any worries around around viewership. It is still this, you know, global behemoth that goes around the world and really attracts those attendances as well. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but if you haven't heard, we are heading to Manhattan for Sports Pro New York. On the 18th and 19th of March, you can hear from industry innovators such as LPGA Tour Commissioner Molly Marcus Saman, David Gandler, the CEO of Fubo TV, and Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark. Come to be inspired and learn how to successfully navigate the major opportunities in modern sports media. Book your place today at newyork.sportspro.com and listeners to this podcast can get 20% off by using code PODCAST at checkout. Terms and conditions apply and this offer is not applicable to pre-existing purchases. I wanted to look at the sponsorship inventory in a bit more detail and some of the the interestingly titled new teams that we're going to be seeing this season. I'm going to hand over that slight hospital pass to you. Take us through some of the new team names we'll be hearing this season. So we've got two major... Catchy team names, I should say. Two major rebrands, and they're very, very catchy. So we've got Stake F1 team Kicksalber, who have taken over the previously known as Alfa Romeo team. We no longer have Alfa Tauri either. They have become the Visa Cash App RB F1 team, which are really easy to remember and really roll off the tongue. Apparently they're going to be known as VCarb. Is, uh... Yeah, v- VCarb for sure. That is the, that's what <laughs> they're going to try and get everyone to call them, but I don't think we're going to call them VCarb. I feel sorry for commentary teams around the world that have to shout those out in quick succession. I think we'll be hearing Crofty uh, drop Sauber into, into commentary quite a few times. <laughs> It's interesting to look at those teams and their rebrands. As you say, it does show on the one side the abiding interest in Formula One as a property and the the desire for, you know, endemic and newer brands to be attached to these teams and to this series. What does it tell you in terms of the inventory that we're seeing across teams and 
how those sort of title partnerships are being structured now to the extent that we have multiple partners across multiple industries joining almost, it's almost like a game of Scrabble, just joining a name after name after name. How have we got to that? I feel like it's quite easy to, I guess, exaggerate off the back of these rebrands, but I think they need to be taken in isolation, especially when you look at, I guess, where the teams were before these sponsorship deals were announced. You've got the Alfa Romeo team, which is in essence Sauber. Alfa Romeo were just paying for a title sponsorship of the Sauber team. They are going to become Audi in 2026, no matter what Sauber do over the next two years. So this feels a little bit just like a free hit for them uh, from a commercial standpoint. Audi will have 75% ownership of the team in 2026. So I guess from that point of view, it makes a lot of sense for Sauber to sort of chase that revenue however they can. It's a wordy name, but it is all under the stake brand. Kick is a is a stake-backed streaming platform. So throughout the season, we'll see that sort of title sponsorship switch between stake and kick, depending basically on the gambling regulations of the country. So there's going to be, I think, five or six races this season where stake will not be allowed to be shown on the car. So at those races, there'll be the kick F1 team. Every other race, it'll be the stake F1 team. But then on the flip side, you've obviously got this new V-Carb team, the the second Red Bull team. There's been a lot of sort of, I guess, changes behind the scenes at Red Bull. Obviously, last season, you had Dietrich Mateschitz passed away and he was a big driver of Red Bull's F1 programme. From reports, his son is not as invested in sort of the F1 programme for Red Bull. There was serious talks about the team being sold on, but they eventually settled on this, I guess, complete restructuring of the team, bringing on, you know, big partners in Visa and Cash App. This is Visa's first sports sponsorship in 15 years, you know, completely dropping this whole idea of them being a second team. I think they quite quickly realised that commercially having this team positioned as a second team made things quite difficult for them because obviously brands would want to be associated with Red Bull instead of basically the junior team. So this was more of just a repositioning. Obviously, we've sort of settled on quite a difficult and wordy team name as a result of it. But I think it makes sense for them to, I guess, drive that as much as they can. They've also got Hugo Boss have joined on board. They had basically a clean slate in terms of inventory, this team. So you've seen probably the most new deals um, have happened at Visa Cash App RB. It still doesn't get any easier to say, but... It's a change for sure, but I think as a whole, it doesn't indicate, I guess, a wider trend in F1 quite yet. These are teams on the lower end of the Constructors' Championship and they're going to be trying to drive revenue however they can. So I don't think we'll see this sort of replicated across you know, the more established teams. Keen, do you think V-Carb are the team that could potentially be the team to go if we were to get an Andretti GM-backed outfit in the future? Like... To me, it's the kind of one that makes the most sense. As you said, like they're a junior team. I think even with this repositioning and restructuring, they will be seen as a junior team. They've got a team name which sounds like something in professional cycling rather than something in motorsport. It doesn't scream long-term thinking. It screams like these might be the dying days of V-Carb. You would think, if reports are to be believed, they rejected a $1 billion bid for the team during the off-season. So... I feel like if they were looking to 
sort of shift away from that two-team model, they would have done it or at least continued those conversations. I think at the moment, they probably see the team as more of a commercial opportunity than a sporting opportunity. I think Red Bull are obviously, you know, the golden goose. They're winning everything. I think they don't really need VCARB to be competitive at the moment. Whether that changes this season with the close relationship between the two teams, I think we'll wait and see. I think from my point of view, the team that is probably most likely to sell up, if any of the 10 do, would be Haas, just in terms of Gene Haas's level of interest in the team, whether that will, I guess, continue. Obviously, Gunther Steiner is gone for the start of this season. Ayo Komatsu has come in as the new team principal. It does seem to be, at least from the start of the season, like they are batting down the hatches and getting ready for a really, really tough start to the season in terms of all the communication you've seen coming out of that team. Whether that progresses throughout the season, you know, we'll we'll wait and see. But I think Haas are definitely probably the team to watch in terms of potentially looking to sell in the future. Yeah, we'll both drive to survive the lack of uh, Gunther Steiner. There's probably more pressing matters that we can be discussing. You say that though, but... You do get him in this in this most recent season. You, I think, wasn't MoneyGram their title sponsor? Yeah. Expressed quite serious concerns that Gunther Steiner had been released from their brand exposure point of view. Um, I don't think they went as far as serious concerns. Maybe behind closed doors they had concerns. I spoke to Greg Hall, who is Chief Marketing Officer at MoneyGram uh, pre-season event. Yeah, they seem quite excited to continue working with the team. They're quite excited to start working with Ayo Komatsu. Obviously, Steiner will be a big miss commercially. He was, in many ways, I guess, a third driver in terms of popularity. But I think we'll just need to wait and see, I guess, how this sort of changes their position in the sport, whether losing a charismatic leader like Steiner, whether that will, I don't know, maybe see Haas fade a little bit. Um, They seem to be everyone's almost second team um, just because of everyone's love of Gunter Steiner and his um, his outbursts. So I don't know whether we'll sort of see that relevance maybe fade now that he's gone. We'll have to keep an eye on it, even if you couldn't not keep an eye on it in the, in the old Gunter Steiner days. Now, Kim, before we leave you, I, I did want to talk about F1 Academy and it's, I guess, much more expanded alignment with Formula One as a whole. So again, can you give me the the foundational knowledge, I guess, in terms of what that partnership looks like and how it's going to present itself this year? So, yeah, so F1 Academy was, I guess, the spiritual successor to W Series, which, you know, really pioneered this format of promoting female participation in junior motorsport. Obviously, W Series encountered financial difficulties and went into administration. And I think F1 Academy has sort of risen from that and basically tried to carry on that really driving that message home. I think last season probably was a little bit of a dress rehearsal for F1 Academy. They won't admit this, but I think this year was intended to be the first season of F1 Academy. It felt like a lot of things came around a little bit too quickly for them last year. They didn't have live coverage of any of the races. It all seemed kind of thrown together at the last minute. Whereas this year seems like much more of a hard launch of the series. You've got All 10 F1 teams are going to be supporting one car on the grid. There's 15 cars in total in F1 Academy, and then those five additional cars will have partner backing from five brands. So we've already had Charlotte Tilbury announced as a sponsor. We've already had Puma announced, and we've already had Tommy Hilfiger announced. We're quite clearly getting these big brands on board with the series as well. We've got 
two more partners, obviously, you know, waiting to be announced on top of that. It just seems a lot more focused this year in terms of what it's trying to achieve compared to last year, where obviously it felt like maybe things weren't as ready as they could have been. But this definitely feels more like opening night this year. Again, looking back at the what constitutes success here, you know, what do you think F1 and, and F1 Academy will be looking to, you know, what are those goals that have a bit more clarity for this year? It's difficult to say with a junior series. I mean, like, if you look back to, to W Series, um, they attracted a million viewers for their race at Silverstone on Channel 4, which was massive. But you can't expect that kind of viewership for a junior motorsport series consistently. That's an unrealistic expectation. And I think moving forwards, the focus for F1 Academy needs to be more on the competitive side rather than anything else. It needs to be giving, you know, young women a chance to compete on track, which they wouldn't normally get. And I think that was the driving force behind the creation of the series in the first place. I think joining the F1 calendar this year means that track time will go down for the drivers. That trade-off is obviously more visibility by being on the support calendar. But I think that sort of competitive side and having them basically drive in a global series which gets this kind of visibility can only be good to increase participation on the on the actual junior support grid obviously formula two formula three there's currently only one female driver in both of those support categories so i think the success of this series will be determined on in five ten years can that number go up in the other support categories you're saying that the F1 Academy's alignment with the Formula One calendar will help on visibility, but that's more from the on-track spectator point of view, right? As opposed to from a broadcast point of view. Well, not necessarily. I think if you take Sky's F1 coverage here in the UK, they'll be pushing F1 Academy a lot more with sort of advertising and in their actual broadcasting of F1. You see a lot of sort of Formula Two and Formula Three pop-ups come up when you're watching an F1 session, whether it's practice or qualifying. So they'll be able to push that sort of F1 Academy narrative through the main offering as well. So there will be that broadcast benefit on top of the people in attendance at the races. I think as well, part of it will be selling this from a marketing perspective too. So like they've signed up to create a docuseries with um, a US production company. And like that will really help, I think, in terms of expanding the general motorsports fans' knowledge of who some of these drivers are. People who are really plugged in, like they know when a hot support rider is coming through into Formula One from F2, F3, wherever it may be. Whereas like that narrative has just not been there for female drivers. Obviously, W Series helped. I think a lot of what people know who Jamie Chadwick is now, but like she's not necessarily going to make it into Formula One. What I think the whole idea with the F1 Academy was about making sure that these were known names by the time they came in. And therefore, there was that bit of clamor to get them into the series from a kind of fan perspective that's so important i mean like when they're doing those kind of introductory bits of drive to survive and talking about who these people are it's like their tone that's set which is quite effective is sort of like you should already know who this person is because they've been dominating in junior series and now that narrative is going to be there it's going to be told from its own perspective in the f1 academy docuseries but also they'll have that support network from from formula one generally in terms of giving these female drivers a push i mean it's half of the sort of battle when it comes to putting a driver in the series is the is the marketing and build up around them in addition obviously to the talent but it's a important cog in that wheel i think 
in that journey, Kian, you mentioned some of the partners that have come on board, most notably and recently Charlotte Tilbury coming to the table. How important do you think the F1 Academy is for creating, you know, the the commercial might, I guess, of a driver that is needed in Formula One? You know, we've seen a few paid drives, I guess, over the last few years, and there is undoubtedly a need for financial backing and brand alignment when it comes with a driving seat. Do you think that's an important building block that F1 Academy can create in order to support that push towards a female driver in Formula One? I mean, Definitely. Something that maybe gets overlooked is that every entrant into F1 Academy is being expected to bring their own budget. And something that is, you know, being helped this season is having these brands and having the F1 teams involved means that basically a portion of that budget is being covered now. So I think it's an unfortunate reality in the world of motorsport that wherever you are, wherever you're racing, you're going to need to bring investment with you in order to compete and that investment only increases the further up the ladder you go i think it's important to remember that fm academy is in essence a formula four series expecting it to have i guess a similar impact to something like formula two is going to be tricky but i think it's about as tom mentioned sort of building that narrative around these drivers and supporting them on their way up the support grid you know up through formula three up through formula two and having that story behind them and having them associated with these brands can only help on that journey. Well, thank you for the update there, Kin. And looking across the whole season um, and, and, and previewing some of the key talking points. Now, before we leave you to your recovery, I do, of course, want to get some predictions from you. So I want to know who, and this is obviously a bold one, but who you think will come out on top from the constructor's point of view, from the driver's point of view. And I also want to know your surprise package for the year. Tom, the same goes to you. I can already see you wincing. I think... Unfortunately, we are probably going to look at a Max Verstappen World Championship with a Red Bull Constructors Championship once more. But I think a surprise package this season will actually be the excellently named Visa Cash App RB F1 team. I don't know. I just think a closer synergy with Red Bull can only be a good thing. And if Red Bull are dominating, then that can only be a positive for them. So I'm going to go... I can't really look past Verstappen and Red Bull for driver and constructor. In terms of who's going to be a surprise package, I'm going to say Mercedes is going to be a surprise package, but not in the way that people think. I think like we're coming towards the end of the Lewis Hamilton era at Mercedes. It's not been particularly glorious since he was robbed of that title a couple of years ago. And with the fact that it's already known he's going to Ferrari for 2025, that could end in a ugly, ugly way, not through sort of a big spat with Toto on the radio or anything like that. But I just don't see uh, the sort of the end really that actually his run at Mercedes deserves. Like he's he's clearly he's been a fantastic driver there. He's been amazing for like so many kind of as a as a voice in the grid for social causes, for sustainability causes. But it's just not been working for the last couple of years. And moving to Ferrari, it's it's always odd, I think, when you know in any sport that someone is leaving at the end of a season, especially when you know that before the start of the season that you're about to enter. So yeah, I think that'll be my surprise package is the sort of ugly end to things at Mercedes HQ for Lewis Hamilton and the team. Your surprise package is going to be a damp squib. Come on, Tom, I expected better than that. 
Well, what do you want? A big blowout on the radio? I could give you a big blowout. They're, 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 Toto and Toto and Lewis Hamilton are going to insult each other. Stops on track. Insulting, yeah, on strike. Insulting, <laughs> going to be insulting each other's mothers as they like as Lewis speeds around the Abu Dhabi circuit at the end of the season. Yeah, that's it. There's my bold prediction: mother insults on track. And there is the first social clip for today's episode. <laughs> now, Kian, I know before I do actually let you go now. I know we have some Black Book LinkedIn lives kicking off next week. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Uh, we do, yes. Starting from next Tuesday, we will be launching the Mics Out Black Book LinkedIn Lives. Uh, at the moment, though, the goal is for you know bi-weekly episodes, almost a bit like your esteemed podcast, George, where uh, we will go through the business news, but exclusively in the motorsport world. So that's Tuesday, the 5th of March and bi-weekly episodes thereafter. So make sure you tune in. I certainly will be and taking some tips on how to run these shows. As always, Kian, absolute pleasure to have you with us. Rest up, my friend. We want you uh, We want you alive, kicking and raring to go. I, I keep saying alive as if hopefully that's fully on the cards. It's not even at risk here. We want you match fit and racing for the 5th of March. But thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, George. Alive, I definitely am. Good to hear. Tom, as always, a pleasure to be joined by you. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot.